we've put together a brand new sample of RAR Premium. So if you've been on the fence about joining us inside RAR Premium, you can get a free sample now to see if it's a good fit for your family. To get that free sample, go to readaloudrevival.com slash sample or just text the word RAR sample like it's all squished together in one word. <laughs> RAR sample to the number 33777. Okay, here's the show. I'm going to paraphrase. This is not verbatim, but he said, if you want your child to be more brilliant, reading fairy tales, more brilliant, more fairy tales. <laughs> That's the best. And this is coming from Einstein. listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Hello, hello, Sarah McKenzie here. You've got episode 129 of the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. Today is a special episode kind of day. We've got Jim Weiss back on the podcast. Now, his voice is going to be familiar to a lot of you, whether you've heard him sing Stone Soup, listen to him tell you the story of the world. Maybe you've heard his brand new Bible stories or any of the classics he's read. He's a master storyteller behind audio recordings that many of us know and love. You can find them at jimweiss.com. And we'll put a link, of course, in the show notes. The show notes will be at readaloudrevival.com slash 129. Since 1989, Jim has produced award-winning audio recordings for kids that bring classic literature, mythical tales, history, all of it just to life. And in addition to his recording fabulous stories, he also gives live performances in libraries, stores, schools, community events all over the world. He's even performed at the White House. So Jim has joined us on the podcast before, but it was four years ago when the Read Aloud Revival was just a little baby podcast. So we are thrilled to have him back. Now, he gave us a little something special for this episode. Jim has generously allowed us to air a couple of his stories for your kids here on the podcast. I'm really excited about it. So usually I answer a listener question here at the top of the episode, but instead of doing a listener question this time, I'm going to play for you Jim Weiss's Stone Soup. This is one selection, one part of the four stories that are on Jim's recording called Fairy Tale Favorites in Story and Song. So that's going to come next. Then after that, you're going to hear my conversation with Jim. And then after that, usually we do Let the Kids Speak, where of course we have kids call in and tell us their favorite books. We all love that part of the podcast, right? Um, we're going to get another story from Jim at the end. So instead of Let the Kids Speak today, you're going to get to hear part of his Sherlock Holmes recording. So as you can see, it is indeed a special episode. So without further ado, I would like to present Jim Weiss telling us the story of Stone Soup. Please know that these stories shared on the Read Aloud Revival podcast are copyright James Weiss. Stone Soup. It was the son of the village blacksmith, 
who first saw the soldiers appearing over the top of the hill. And he went running up the main street, yelling, soldiers, soldiers are coming. Well, before you could say, where did everybody go? The villagers had disappeared from the streets. You see, there had been other groups of soldiers who had returned from the war, and they had come through this village and taken what they wanted from the poor villagers. And the villagers were now afraid that there was going to be more thievery in their streets, and so they went into hiding. But what of the dozen soldiers coming down the hill? They were weary, they were dusty, and they were hungry. Their leader was a tall, red-haired Irishman, Sergeant O'Hara. And he looked ahead and he turned to his corporal, the Scotsman, McPhee, and he said, Sure now, Jock, there's nobody on the streets down there. Looks like we're entering another one of these friendly villages we are. And he laughed. He looked back over his shoulder to see the other soldiers behind him. And at the rear of the long line was the hugest man you've ever seen, who single-handedly was pulling the cooking wagon. All the soldiers slowly made their way down the hillside and into the town square. Well, they all turned towards the cooking wagon. And as they gathered outside, the door swung open. And there, framed in the doorway of the cooking wagon, was their wiry little cook. Private Howard Igginbotham, reporting for duty, sir. You have needed me services? And he strutted down the two steps. Indeed I do, Private Higginbottom. It seems that the lads here are a wee bit hungry. Just one little problem. And what would that be, Higginbottom? We're fresh out of food. Well, the soldiers were plenty upset. But Sergeant O'Hara called them all together in a tight little circle, and this is what he said to them. Now, me lads, we've all had our share of violence and fighting in this war, and we've all come through it all right. All we need is enough food to get us home now but there's not going to be any rough stuff. We've got to use our brains, we do. A little trick will do it. And he stood up and announced loudly, loudly enough so that he knew the villagers would hear it. It seems to me this is the perfect occasion for a big brew of stone soup. Stone soup, shouted the soldiers, and they started to jump up and down in excitement. And the villagers, hiding behind their locked doors, turned to one another and said, Stone soup? Stone soup? What's stone? I never, what is stone soup? I never heard of stone soup. Did you? No, I never heard of stone soup. And then little private Higginbottom clapped his hands for attention and he said, Now, fellas, you're all wasting time, you are. You got to scour the neighborhood for the very best soup stones you can get me. Hurry up. And you, Big John. And he turned to the huge man who had carried the cooking wagon into town. Hurry up, Big John. Start a fire and fill the kettle with some water. Well, the villagers now began to peek through their shutters. Soup stones, they said. Soup stones? The soldiers were so excited, they began to sing a little song. One of them produced a banjo from somewhere, and this is how the song went. There's them who likes the lobster. There's them who likes the steak. There's them who like prime rib right off the bones. There's them who like their veggies, as green as they can be. But as for me, I like a soup of stones. Stone soup, stone soup. Whether you are all alone or gathered in a group, there's nothing that's more pleasing at any time or season. So brew us up a bowl of stone soup. 
Some folks like their pastries. They love their cake or pie. Some folks love bananas off the tree. But I would rather settle and sit beside a kettle. Stone soup is the only thing for me. Yeah. Stone soup. Stone soup. Whether you are all alone or gathered in a group, there's nothing that's more pleasing at any time or season. So brew us up a bowl of stone soup. Brew us up a bowl of stone soup. Brew us up a bowl of stone soup. By now, the soldiers were gathering back around the cooking wagon and the cattle, carrying a wide assortment of stones. Big ones, little ones, all colors and shapes. Private Higginbottom, looking very important, strolled up and down the line of soldiers and carefully inspected each stone presented to him. No, 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 he said. This ain't no soup stone at all at all. Then he looked at the next one. Oh, yes, he's a regular beauty. This one goes straight into the pot, Big John. And the huge man dropped it into the water. At last he came to a soldier who was holding a large stone with many colors on it. Higginbottom's eyes grew wide, and he got a big grin, and he said, Look at this one. Coo, she's the Mona Lisa of soupstones. Oh, fellas, you can stop your looking now. With this one in the pot, we're going to have us the best batch of stone soup you ever did taste. And he gently took the soup stone and personally dropped it into the kettle, where it made a loud splash. Then all the soldiers gathered around and watched the steam rise. About a half hour later, Private Higginbottom stuck a spoon in and stirred it around, and then he took a little taste. My, my, she's getting pretty tasty, she is, but uh, but she's missing something. Ah, of course, I know what it is. Oh, too bad. We're missing onions, and I don't know I'm going to make this soup perfect without them onions. Now, in the third house on the left in that little village lived old Mrs. Snodgrass, and she was quite a cook. She could hear him complaining about the lack of onions. She knew there was nothing worse for a really good cook than to be in the middle of cooking your best recipe, only to find you were missing an important ingredient. She finally took pity on him. Still, she was afraid of going out to see the soldiers, so she compromised. She grabbed a bunch of onions from her pantry, opened the front door, threw the onions out on her front step, and slammed the door shut. It all happened so quickly, no one could see it. No one, that is, except Sergeant O'Hara, who was very quick himself. With a wide grin, he strolled up the street, picked up the onions from the step, bowed a low, sweeping bow to the closed door, and he said, Madam, tis a fine thing you've done, a grand and a glorious gesture. And let me assure you, these onions will not go to waste, not a bit of it. They're going straight into the finest batch of stone soup ever to be tasted in these parts. And he took the onions back, and two minutes later they went into the kettle. Now another half hour went by. And again, Private Higginbottom tasted the soup, and he turned to his huge assistant. Big John, here, you take a taste. John stuck in a huge spoon, stirred it around, and took a little taste. At last, the huge man said, Beef! Beef! It needs beef! Ah, Sharon, that's a pity, too, said Sergeant O'Hara. We ain't had no beef for the last three days. Now, Behind their locked door and shuttered window were the mayor and his wife. 
both of whom were wonderful cooks. And it just so happens that they were always competing with old Mrs. Snodgrass as to who was the best cook in the village. And the mayor turned to his wife and he said, Listen, if this soup is as good as those soldiers say, I'm not going to have that Snodgrass woman claiming it was her onions that made it so. We've got plenty of beef back in our pantry, and I'm going to give it to those soldiers. Then he opened the door and walked down the steps and along the street, straight along to Sergeant O'Hara, carrying the beef. He cleared his throat and he said, <clears throat> On behalf of our entire community and my wife and myself, I should like to present you with this beef. By any chance, asked Sergeant O'Hara, who knew this type exactly, by any chance might you be the mayor of this booming metropolis? I am indeed the mayor. Oh, and there's a fine village you got here, your honor. Thanks so much for your generous offer of the beef. And and won't you won't you pull up a chair and join us? There's gonna be plenty of stone soup at the end for everybody. Soon the mayor's wife came out and sat down with him. And then one by one the villagers came out of their hiding places, because now they could see that the soldiers really posed no threat at all. Every few minutes, Big John or Private Higginbottom would sample the soup and say, How can I make some stone soup without bacon? Uh, I, think a, I think a little celery, a little celery would be real helpful too. And each time, one of the villagers would jump up and say, I've got some celery or I've got some bacon and run back home and in two minutes be back with that missing ingredient. It all went into the big black pot. At last, Private Higginbottom took one last taste. His eyes grew dreamy, and he said, Coo, she's a bloomin' masterpiece, she is. She's all ready. Everybody get a bowl. And they did. He served every one of the soldiers and every one of the villagers. Mmm. They all agreed this was the best thing they had ever tasted. They all finished the bowls, they all had seconds, and some of them even had thirds. But because the kettle was so big and so deep, there was still some stone soup left over. And this, Private Higginbottom distributed among all the villagers. The mayor turned to the sergeant and said, Oh, that's a very generous thing for you to do, but uh, sergeant, don't you want to take that stone soup with you? Well, human nature being what it is, said O'Hara, I do believe we can get ourselves some more stone soup in the next village. And O'Hara turned and winked at his corporal. Meanwhile, old Mrs. Snodgrass had taken aside Private Higginbottom, and she said, The recipe. Can't you give me the recipe? Oh, missus, he said. It ain't no secret. Now that you got some stone soup in your bowl at home, all you got to do is eat it up and add a little bit more of the ingredients that you also generously contributed this time. Long as you got that little bit of the first batch, you'll always add some stone soup. And so at last, the soldiers, no longer hungry, left the village, and the villagers all gathered out and waved and cheered them on. And the last thing that they could see was the cooking wagon going over the crest of the hill. And the air carried back to them the voices of the soldiers singing their song. Brew us up a bowl of stone soup. Well, Jim Weiss, welcome back to the Read Aloud Revival. Thank you so much, Sarah. And I just want to say at the beginning, 
I was so inspired by our last talk that for the last four years, I've been reading aloud. Thank you. We're delighted to have you back. One of the things I wanted to ask you right here at the top of our time together is what you might say to parents who are worried that they're not any good at reading aloud. Because of course, for any of us who've heard your audio recordings or a really good audio book narration, sometimes we go to sit and read to our kids and think, I am not any good at this. So I would love to hear your thoughts for any parents who worry about that. Well, the first thing is you're probably better than you know. Nobody sounds good to themselves at the beginning of this. I have this vision that when Merle Street's daughters were kids, they probably said to her, oh, mom, do we have to do this again? When she started reading to them or probably, almost certainly, at some point while she was reading aloud, they said, that's not the same voice you used the other night <laughs> yeah. for that character. That one hits all of us. So the main thing is this. The absolute foundational thing to remember is this, that not only are you reading the content of whatever the story is or the history may be, when you are reading aloud to your kids, you're doing so much more at that same time. And that doesn't have anything to do with how well you got a particular voice or something. What matters is that you are sharing a story, sharing learning, just sharing time together as a parent with a child. And those moments, your kids will remember. And even if they don't remember the content of every, everything you read to them or tell to them, they will always remember that element of it. What you're trying to do above and beyond you know, handing over particular data or information or a story or a bit of history is you're just trying to turn your child on to learning and that you're doing right off. You're already at least halfway to your goal mm. just when you sit down and start. As far as actual skills go, everybody does this differently. Now, Sarah, you've heard a lot of my recordings mm -hmm. over the years. And some of them are filled with many different character voices, as well as my own voice as a narrator. But some of them, less so. The particular story just doesn't seem to demand it as much. I don't have to go to, you know, come up with really vivid, distinctive character voices in a few of these stories. So don't worry about that stuff. If it doesn't come naturally to you, I'll give you a few tips. But just do it the way it works for you. And don't try to sound like somebody you just listened to on an audiobook. Those people, remember, get to go back and correct it <laughs> right. if, they didn't, if they don't get it the right, the right the first time. We don't have that luxury when we read to our kids. Well, what you just said kind of reminds me, I've been thinking a lot lately about reading aloud as an act of love. As a, Really, it's, a, it's an act of love to sit down and share a story, to pause the, all of your schedule, stop everything else you're doing, and just sit in a story with your child. And I think it's one of the reasons that a lot of people will have a story time that is really bracketed beginning and end. You know, I mean, you can tell a story anytime. You can tell a story in the car. In fact, it's a good place to do it because you have a captive audience. That's right. <laughs> but uh, of course, that's if you're not listening to one of my recordings. <laughs> cough, cough, cough. But the fact <laughs> is that you can do it anytime. But in regard to what you were just saying, if there's a specific thing you can do to begin and end official story time, it's a fine thing to do. If you make up a little rhyme, let's say, that has to do with stories that you and your kid can say together at the beginning and maybe at the end, after you've done that a few times, when you start to say that rhyme, just watch your child and see what happens. Because he or she is just going to drop right into story mode. 
they're going to just, you're going to see a change in their body and in their face. And because, oh, it's story time now. You can do it with a little poem. You can have, a, find yourself pretty rock with some colors on it, maybe, or, or a quartz crystal or something, and put it up on the shelf. And when it's officially story time, take the rock down and set it down in front of your child and say, okay, it's story time. Oh, yeah. And share the story. And when you're done, say, time to put away the story stone and move on to whatever's next in the day. Some people get themselves a rain stick or a tambourine or a little chime, something for the beginning and the end. And you don't have to do that, but it's kind of a neat way to make the time of stories that much more important and that much more noticeable. So you get your child into the mode. Now, you have heard me say this before, Sarah, so I apologize for repeating, but not everybody who's listening has heard me say this. I always feel there are basically two rules to this and only two rules. Everything else you get to decide for yourself. But the two things that you absolutely have to do, whether you're reading out loud or telling in your own words, these are the two things. The first thing is that you should only be telling stories or reading stories aloud that you like yourself. Because people can tell, consciously or not, if you're not into it. And if you're not into it, and you start reading it to your child, she's not going to be into it either. Yeah. Chances are. Yeah. She's going to pick up on your energy. Whereas if you start to tell me or read me a story that you love, I can tell. And I get excited because you're excited. And you've got a much better chance of carrying the child into that wonderful place also. And the second thing to think about is to think about to whom am I telling this or reading this, which opens up a whole lot of things for parents who are readers. First of all, there's some stories you might want to share with your son or your daughter, but you say, gee, there's this one scene that's kind of scary, or there's one thing I'm not uncomfortable or that I'm uncomfortable reading. Well, you know what? You're not doing a disservice to the author or the piece by rewording that one piece to fit your child. Mm. You're, what you're doing, because otherwise, your kid's not going to get the story anyway. Mm -hmm. Tell the story, and when you get to that one piece, give yourself permission to reword it to soften it and to get rid of graph any graphic violence or anything like that. It's okay. I can tell the same story any number of ways depending on who it is that I'm, I'm talking to. If it's a three-year-old, a 10-year-old, a high school age, or somebody my own age, those of us who walked the earth when dinosaurs <laughs> roamed the world. And you could give yourself permission to do that. You're a translator of the material to your child. And it's okay. Just as it's okay if you see confusion on her face, to stop for a second and say, you know what that means? Or do you understand? Or that's perfectly okay. A lot of voices might tell you that you need to learn how to get better at homeschooling. But I know something about you. You don't actually need to homeschool better. You need to homeschool happier, to have more fun, to smile more, laugh more. You want a twinkle in your eye. <laughs> and you want your kids to know deep in their bones that you love homeschooling them. That twinkle is worth pursuing too, because the key to a successful homeschool is a peaceful, happy mother. And that's what we're committed to helping you become at RER Premium. 
RAR Premium is a unique program that offers mentoring for you, the homeschool mom, and we offer Open and Go Family Book Club. This is a family book club you can use with all ages from 4 to 17, and it will explore language arts, reading, and we often dip into writing, science, history, all across the curriculum as we uncover so many good and meaningful ideas. The best news is we do all the prep work for you. If you'd like to get a free sample of RAR Premium so you can see if it's a good fit for your family, head to readaloudrevival.com slash sample, or you can just text RAR sample, one word, to the number 33777 and we'll send it your way. Now back to the show. Okay, I love this because it really speaks to me of the difference between just reading the words on the page and telling a story, which is one of the things I love about your recordings is they always feel like they are told stories. There's like, you are the living vessel that is sharing the story with me, not just the words on the page, which I think is also as much as I, and I, I do absolutely love audiobooks and audio recordings. One of the special things about sharing a story with your child coming from you, the parent, is that you're that living vessel for your child and you can watch their reaction, just like you just said, and see if they're completely lost. You know, there's been a lot of Mm -hmm. times where I've been reading with my kids and look up and realize, oh yeah, they'd have no idea what's going on. (laughs) And so then you can kind of stop and go, okay, let's see. And it adds this living element to storytelling that you do so well. And it's okay to even restate something. If If you see that confusion coming out on your child's face, you don't, if you don't want to, you don't even have to break character. You can just restate it in your own words, still in character, if you want. If I'm telling a Sherlock Holmes story, and you know I do a lot of those, I love those characters. Yes. If I'm telling it live, and I look out and I see that something Sherlock Holmes just said to Dr. Watson seems to be confusing somebody, I won't stop and become Jim Weiss to paraphrase it. I'll just have Holmes say to Watson, or to put it another way, Watson, (laughs) And I'll say it in my own words and clarify it that way. That's so good because then it doesn't pull your well, child out of the story, right? Yeah, it keeps him or her in the, in the story. Or you can have the other character to whom this one was speaking ask about it. Like Watson could say, I, I beg your pardon, Holmes, but I don't quite understand. Well, let me put it another way then. <laughs> Either way, whether it's the character who is speaking or the other one asking that character, it gives you a chance to say it another way. Some other things that I think of are this. When you're telling stories, well, you have enough kids, so you know this, Sarah, you've run into this. <laughs> you're telling a story and your child gets really excited and starts interrupting. Oh, yeah. With thoughts or better yet, they'll say, yeah, and that's when they, and they start jumping ahead in the story, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is particularly annoying if their little sister or brother is sitting there who doesn't know the story yet. And, you, <laughs> you know, and, you're, and you're leading up to that place and your older one spills the beans, you know? Yeah, exactly. So my grandfather used to have a lovely way of dealing with that because at times I was that excited child who would, who would jump in. And grandpa used to look at, stop, he would stop and he would look at me and he would arch his eyebrow. He was a world-class eyebrow archer, my grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> he would arch his eyebrow and he would ask, who's telling this story, <laughs> which is grandpa's way of saying, shh, don't, don't jump in here, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I knew what it meant. 
And I would, I would hold off for the next 10 minutes at least. On the one hand, you don't want to stop somebody who's enthused. But on the other hand, there's something to be said for building the story without jumping into it too often. Now, that doesn't mean you can't take some questions or some interruptions. But sometimes it's possible after one or two of those to say, you know what? Why don't you hold on with these other questions? Because I think you're going to get this in the course of this story. And then if you still have a question at the end, we can talk about it. Unless this really has to get answered right now, honey, in which case, okay. And that kind of adds a framework for the, for the child. It's also, by the way, you know, of the umpteen things that happen simultaneously when we're sharing stories, one of those things is your child is learning how to listen and how to be an audience. I've been in places where some kids, even some adults, don't seem to know how to act during a live performance. And this is one of the things you're passing along too, without saying so. This right. is one of the things that you're passing along too. I'm working on something right now that involves Albert Einstein, mm. the story of Albert Einstein. And he talks about that a lot. Here's Einstein, and he's saying imagination is much more important than facts. Yeah. He said, I, I never followed what would seem to be a logical path in arriving in any of my major discoveries. Wow. I imagined them all and went from there. I think there's a quote I know I've heard, and I don't know if I, if it's properly attributed to Einstein or not, something about him saying, if you want your child to be mathematically and scientifically minded, then you should read them fairy tales. Is that Does that come from him? Do you know? Yeah. He said, I'm going to paraphrase. This is not verbatim, but he said, if you want your child to be more brilliant, read him fairy tales. More brilliant, more fairy tales. <laughs> That's the best. And this is coming from Einstein. I would also say to a lot of parents on a practical level, if you find that you're good at changing character voices, great. At least with your main characters. One of the places on our jimweiss.com website is that offers all the, the notes that I usually hand out to people when I'm doing a teaching conference kind of a situation where oh, yeah. I'm teaching how to tell stories. And one of those sections is called Your Vocal Palette. And it talks about things you can do to differentiate one character from another. And they're really simple things. We just don't think of them consciously. Okay. The one that most people think of is, I'm going to give this character a high voice and this one a lower voice. And that's, that may be all you need to do. But you could also play with speed between different characters or volume. or They're just a, a half dozen simple things you can do just enough to differentiate one voice from another. Now, if you find as a teller or a reader, that that is too difficult for you, that it, you can't do that and also just plain get the story across, don't do it. Just read the voice and maybe try a little bit to change the voice or feel free to add, said Irene. Oh, yes. John. Yeah. Okay. You know? I mean, I noticed that I actually do that when I'm reading aloud and I am using voices, sometimes I edit those out. You know, I edit out this said mm -hmm. so-and-so because they already know that because I just changed the voice. But it never even occurred exactly. to me that, of course, if you're not using voices, you can add that as necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you're translating this material and you want it to be clear. And that's perfectly okay. And, and what you said you do is a logical thing. is to get rid of the he said, she said stuff a lot if you're reading aloud 
and using voices. I still will throw in one of those every few minutes yeah, just to reinforce it. Or if it's dialogue that's going rapidly back and forth between a couple of characters, it helps to say, said Irene, every so often. Yes. Just to help them keep it clear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like that. You've said that twice now, which makes me really like, I want to stop there for a second because you said to make things clear. And I just thought like I just had a light bulb moment because I thought, oh, yeah, that's what we're trying to do when you're telling your child a story, whether you're reading it or you're just telling them something. Clarity is always of utmost importance, right? That's the goal. And so whatever you can do to make it more clear. Yeah. And that's and absolutely. And that's why I said you should think about to whom am I telling this? Because there are going to be different things you're going to have to call on for a, a you know an older child. They won't need quite as much clarification, perhaps, as a younger child might in terms of that kind of thing. Would you be able to give us kind of an example of what you mean by like how you can modulate or change your voice just by going faster or slower mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the different changes you just mentioned? Sure. In, on one of my one of my the very first of my history recordings, Galileo and the Stargazers, I told the stories of seven great geniuses of science over the course of nearly 2000 years. And one of them is the story of Isaac Newton. And he, Newton was a painfully shy man. To say stage fright is a vast understatement. Okay. He was very shy. He didn't like notoriety. And of course, he was a school teacher for a living. He's standing in front of an audience, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. and talking. And in one of the scenes, he has figured, one of the scenes in the recording, he has figured out his three laws of motion. And he figured out how gravity works. And he's the first person who has. And he accidentally mentions it to one of his friends, the great astronomer Edmund Halley, you know, Halley's Comet. And when I had the two of them talking, I have Halley louder. And in this case, because he doesn't have a whole lot to say, I give him a little gravel in his voice, too. I wouldn't do this so much for a main character because it can hurt your throat. But somebody that just has a few sentences to say every so often the way Halley does, that's fine. But when Newton comes in, I get softer and gentler and higher and a little bit slower because he's so thoughtful about what he's saying. And he's still a loud enough voice that you can hear it. You don't have to strain. But every time you go from Halley to Newton, you're reminded this man is shy. This man is thoughtful about everything he says. And I don't have to keep saying it. It's right there in the voice. If I'm, you know, my version of the tortoise and the hare. Yes. And in that one, I carry it to real extremes, you know. Tortoise speaks really slowly. And he has a low voice, too. <laughs> yeah. The hair is super fast because the hair is moving fast. He's moving here. He's moving there. He's a here in that kind of a hair. And every time you go from one of them to the other one, the contrast is so comical, which is one of the great things about that particular yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have to go to that extreme the way I did with the tortoise and the hare, but any of those things would be enough. One question I've heard a few times, I don't know if you have an answer to this or not, but I'm curious. A few people have told me they'll get vocal strain where they're, they're, they actually either lose their voice or they have pain from reading aloud so much with their kids. Is there anything yeah. you can do for that? Or Yeah, there are a couple of things. The first one will sound funny, but it's, it's valuable. I tell anybody who has to talk a lot during her day or his day, whether it's a, a parent or a, or a courtroom attorney or a teacher, find a local voice teacher 
and go to that person just for a couple of lessons okay. and say to the person, can you teach me how to breathe and show me some scales? Because like before I go on and perform or before I go into the studio to record, I warm up. I, in my case, I sing because I trained as a singer. But you don't have to even be able to carry a tune. All you're looking for is ways to get most of the support coming from your diaphragm instead of from your throat. And because if you do it from your throat, yeah, you're going to be exhausted and your throat will go bad. If you warm up a little, fine. Secondly, and again, this seems obvious, but people don't do it. Schedule those activities where you find out when you're comfortable talking. I don't usually record early in the morning. My voice really opens up late in the morning and into the afternoon, and then I can record for hours, hmm. just hours, once it's really going. So I don't record it at 8.30 in the morning, unless it's an emergency, you know, on a deadline kind of a thing. I won't do it. So think about when during the day am I going to be less tired and more physically able to do this and schedule that activity, you know, at one in the afternoon or 11 in the morning, instead of waiting until four o'clock to do it, when you and your throat are already tired. Seems so obvious and we don't even think about it, but yeah. that's something in your control. And the third thing I would say is this, all the old things actually work. Chicken soup, you know, hot tea and honey. Okay. Don't do dairy just before you're going to read a lot. And most of all, don't eat any chocolate because they goop up your throat and you have to work a lot harder just to get the sound out and you'll, you'll hurt your throat and exhaust yourself. And the last thing about that, I guess, I, I said earlier when I was talking about Edmund Halley and Isaac Newton, don't give your main character a voice with too much gravel in it because you're going to definitely raunch up your throat. That's yeah. a technical term. That's a Shakespearean term, right? Think about this stuff. You have control over that, all of those factors. And if your voice starts to go, say, you know what? My voice is starting to go. Let's pick up on this tomorrow and let's go do something else. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Or switching to audio, right? It goes without saying. <laughs> Anyone would know that. Oh, Jim, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much for carving out part of your weekend to spend with us. We really appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jim Weiss. Now, not only is he sharing Stone Soup with us, he also wanted to share one of his Sherlock Holmes stories. So next, you'll get to hear this Mazarin Stone. This is from his collection of Sherlock Holmes for Children. We'll put a link to the rest of it in the show notes. If your kids enjoy these audio recordings, they will love other recordings by Jim Weiss, and he has a ton of them. Again, you can get them right from his website going to Jim Weiss, that's W-E-I-S-S dot com, or you can just head to the show notes for this episode, which is readaloudrevival.com slash 129. So here we go. The great detective Sherlock Holmes and his faithful friend, Dr. John Watson, are probably the most famous fictional characters ever created from the mind of a human being. The author who made them up, Arthur Conan Doyle, was himself a medical doctor who grew bored waiting for patients to come to his office and filled his time by writing stories. And what stories they were. In the end, these mysteries featuring Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson made their creator world-famous and very wealthy. So I invite you to join me now in London in the 1890s. A 
horse-drawn carriage makes its way through the narrow streets. The chiming of the great clock cuts through the deep, swirling fog. Mystery is everywhere about you. Quick, the game's afoot. This looks like a case for Sherlock Holmes. The Adventure of the Mazarin Stone Dr. John Watson, now a married man, was visiting his friend Sherlock Holmes at the rooms they once had shared at 221B Baker Street. The landlady, Mrs. Hudson, had let the doctor in. Hmm, the chemical test tubes. The violin case leaning in the corner. Hmm, the scientific charts upon the wall. And the pipe tobacco still stored in the Persian slipper dreadful habit. Well, the place appears basically unchanged, Mrs. Hudson. And so do Holmes's eccentricities. You say he's been out all night. Must be in the midst of a case. And he won't touch a bite, Doctor, replied Mrs. Hudson. Uh, when will you be pleased to dine, I ask him. And he says to me, 7.30 on the day after tomorrow. Oh, I'm dreadfully worried about him. What are all these new curtains around the room? Oh, he had me put them up about three days ago. Oh, look, there's something rather amusing behind this one, see? Good heavens. Oh, it's only a wax figure. Why, it looks exactly like Holmes. Quite remarkable. Except it sits still longer. I think I'll have a closer look. Dr. Watson approached the wax dummy that sat before the closed window. Just then the door opened, and in walked Sherlock Holmes himself. Stop, Watson. Eh? What? Don't go near that window. Why, Holmes, uh, good to see you. Unexpectedly, as always. Mrs. Hudson, that will be all. Will you be having dinner tonight, Mr. Holmes? Not tonight, Mrs. Hudson. After Mrs. Hudson had left, Dr. Watson asked Holmes, Now what's this business about staying away from the window? And why the wax figure? It's there to throw a profile shadow on the shade. You see, situated in the window across the street, there is a gentleman with a noiseless air gun. And I rather fancy he's going to try to blow my head off this evening. What? Yes, and I'd rather have him blow the head off of a wax figure than my own. This head is much too valuable, don't you think? Why, what's this all about, Holmes? It is about the Mazarin Stone. Holmes explained that there had been an amazing jewel robbery. Thieves had made off with a famous diamond called the Mazarin Stone, which belonged to the Queen. The special police had been called in from their headquarters at Scotland Yard, but even they could do nothing. Now the British government was counting on Holmes to find the thieves and the stolen jewel. So far, Holmes had identified the leader of the thieves. And the fellow of whom I speak is Count von Hergel, the big game hunter, and gambler, and man about town, and thief, and murderer, and blackmailer. And there's another fellow in the game, too, Sam Merton. What, the former heavyweight boxing champion? Yes, you may have seen him when you came in. He's lounging in the shadows across the street, Watson, keeping an eye on me. Well, can't you have them arrested if you know they did it? It's no good. I could have them arrested, but I don't know the location of the stolen crown jewel. I want the stone. I've been shadowing the Count in disguise over the last several days, hoping he would lead me to it. Well, I followed him to the workshop of this fellow that makes these noiseless weapons. That's why I suppose the rifle is now in the window opposite. And at any moment, the bullet might come through the glass. Just then, in came the landlady, Mrs. Hudson, to announce that a gentleman wanted to see Mr. Holmes. 
it was Count von Hergel. The man himself. I told you, Watson, he has colossal nerve. Now be a good fellow and go down the back stairway, straight to Scotland Yard. Find Inspector Lestrade or Gregory or whoever is on duty and bring him back here, with some other officers, of course. Nonsense, Holmes. Do you think I'm going to leave you here alone with this fellow? He wants to kill you. Yes, but he's bearding a different kind of animal in his den this time. I am much more dangerous than he. Well, I don't like this, Holmes, but I'll do it. And Dr. Watson left to get the police. Then Sherlock Holmes told the landlady, Now, Mrs. Hudson, do go down and uh, show Count von Hergel up, and then just skip across the street if you don't mind. You'll find a large, rather ugly-faced fellow standing in the shadows, a Mr. Sam Merton. Do ask him to join us. After Mrs. Hudson left, the detective turned and went into his own bedroom, leaving the door open just to crack. A few moments later, his dangerous enemy, Count von Hergel, entered. The Count saw the back of the wax dummy which looked so much like Holmes, and he drew a pistol from beneath his coat. And the Count said, Turn around, Holmes. I have my revolver drawn. I want you to see this coming. Then Holmes, smiling, came out from his bedroom with his own gun aimed at the Count. Nonsense, my dear Count. You'd be wasting the bullet. What? That is only a wax figurine. It is amazing. I'm glad you like it. I had it built especially for you. But why are you here? I am here to demand that you stop having your agents follow me. I've had no agents following you. What, the workman yesterday? And that was yours truly in disguise, as was the old woman today. But why bother following me, Holmes? I want the diamond. You may as well tell me where it is. I know all about you. I know about the train robbery in Switzerland. I know about the murder of Minnie Wanderer. I know about the blackmail of the Countess. And in this case, I have the cab drivers who took you to the robbery and who drove you away. Why, I've even found Sanders who refused to cut the stone up for you afterwards. He has talked, Count Van Hergel. So you see, I have all the proof that I need. If you really have all this proof, why have you not arrested me? Before Holmes could answer, the door opened. In walked Count von Hergel's partner, the huge, muscular boxer, Sam Merton. Hey, what's this all about? Ah, good evening, Mr. Merton. I'm glad you've joined us. I was just giving the Count a choice. The two of you may return the stolen diamond, or go to prison for twenty years. Don't move, Mr. Merton. I have my revolver drawn and aimed your way. Now you gentlemen have several minutes to decide. I will go into the other room for that length of time. I need to practice my violin playing anyway. Still holding his revolver in one hand, Holmes picked up his violin case and went into his bedroom, shutting the door behind him. A few moments later, the sound of his violin could be heard through the shut door. The two thieves drew together. What's this all about, Van Hagel? You think he really has the peach on us? I'm afraid he has all the evidence. But we have the trump card. I still have the Mazarin stone. He will not arrest us until he has the stone itself. What are we going to do? Do, do you think we can really talk here? Do you think he's listening? How can he be? We saw him go into the other room. And don't you hear that violin playing? I guess all these curtains in here make me nervous. 
I thought I heard a noise over there. Gaul, look at him. It's only a wax dummy, Martin. Listen, we have little time. Here is what we must do. Count von Hergel told Sam that with Holmes on their trail, they had to get the stolen jewel out of the country at once. Then the Count said that he actually had the stone with him in a secret pocket. Yeah, let me see it. One more time, please. Yeah, come over by the window where there's a little more light. The Count held the shining diamond in the palm of his hand. He and Merton stared at it as they moved towards the window. That's when the wax dummy of Sherlock Holmes suddenly leaped to its feet and grabbed the diamond from the astonished Count. Thank you, Count. I'll just take that. No, Merton, don't make me shoot. However, I thought you was in the bedroom and this was only a dummy. I neglected to mention there is a second door into this room from behind that curtain. I simply took the place of my wax friend until you so conveniently strolled by me with a stone in your outstretched hand, Count. What about that violin music? Yes, a recording. These newfangled gramophones are quite wonderful, don't you think? Just then, the faithful Dr. Watson burst through the door, followed by a group of policemen. Holmes, are you all right? Oh. Good evening, Inspector. Thank you, Watson. Yes, I'm, I'm quite all right. Here we have Count von Hergel and Sam Merton, and all the evidence we need. The Mazarin Stone. Good evening, gentlemen. I shall see you in Scotland Yard tomorrow. And as the police left with their handcuffed prisoners, Holmes turned to his friend and said, And now, Watson, if you would be so kind as to ring for Mrs. Hudson, would you care to join me for dinner? Suddenly, I'm quite famished. Thank you again, Jim Weiss, for generously sharing your stories and your time with us. We are so grateful. Remember, you can get links to everything we've talked about today in the show at the show notes. Those are at readaloudrevival.com slash 129. You'll find links to where you can find Jim's audio recordings and a whole host of other goodies, including the Read Aloud Revival book list. If you haven't grabbed the book list, what are you waiting for? Head to readaloudrevival.com to grab that book list for free, and you'll always have a great book at your fingertips. That's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the podcast. Until then, go make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Are you still here? Okay, well, I am too. And I wanted to check to see if you've had a chance to download the samples from RAR Premium yet. RAR Premium is committed to helping you become the peaceful, happy mom you're called to be so that your kids know deep in their bones that you just love homeschooling them and also so that they can become lifelong voracious readers. Get a free sample of RAR Premium by going to readaloudrevival.com sample or by texting the word RAR sample, like it's one word all squished together, <laughs> to the number 33777.